cool little uh, small group story I wanted to share with you. I caught an email this week, if I can find it here, from uh, an individual in our church who just found themselves in kind of a freakish financial situation just this week and had the courage to reveal it to their small group members, which took some guts. And, um, you know, just their accounts had been wiped out and so forth. And um, the small group responded, and this person sent an email. says, uh, first off, I wanted to let you know that my most immediate needs have been completely met. Thanks to God's people, my mortgage is paid, my lights are on, my phone is still working, and I have food in the fridge and gas in my tank. Said, here's how it happened. One person met me at a gas station and filled my tank with gas so I could get to work the remainder of the week. Another person took me out to dinner on Tuesday evening. When I got back home, I found an envelope in my mailbox, and there was a card in it with a grocery gift card inside. Someone else gave me a personal gift of money that enabled me to pay several bills before the end of the week. Someone paid my electric bill, which was due Friday, and all of you together, as my current and previous small groups one had been planted out of the other one, put together a love gift, some money, and even a Starbucks gift card. People offered to pay bills, give me food, take me out to eat. I heard from everyone in the group offering me encouragement, practical help, or just trying to make me laugh. And they said, this is the way things are supposed to work in a small group. I went from panicked embarrassment to being absolutely blown away with the generosity and grace of everyone who knew my need. I honestly didn't know what to expect and truly had no expectations when I clicked on send email on Monday evening letting everybody know, but the response I received was beyond any far-out expectations I could have had. You know, we're talking about grace at church these days, and it struck me this week that, that the response I received this week to a mess of my own creating was a perfect illustration of how grace works in real life. We're all personally responsible for the alienation we have from a holy God, yet he knows and provides the means to provide the rescue that we all need. In the same way, I am responsible for this crisis in my financial circumstance, yet a bunch of other people with their own needs and obligations were moved to rescue me. I am profoundly grateful to each one of you for the way you have individually and collectively wrapped your arms around me this past week and loved me in unmistakable ways, and I'm not completely through it all yet, but I can sleep now at night, something I couldn't do on Monday night. And that is the way that a community of grace is supposed to work. Those who have been recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ, extending grace to others in the family of God. Amen? That's the way it's supposed to work. And I praise God. For your responsiveness. Well, we are talking about grace in this series, and primarily God's grace to human beings and the effects in our lives of that grace. And so, if you have a Bible this morning, I encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. There's also a study guide inside your worship folder there that you can pull out, and there's some place to take some notes. Although I'm going to give you far more than you'll be able to fit in those four or five lines that are there. So you'll have to be judicious in your use of space this morning, okay? As we said, grace is God's unmerited favor towards people. Amen? It's God's goodness poured out on undeserving, sinful people, offered as a gift 
not based on anything that we did. I think it's hard for many of us in our culture to get our minds around grace because we, lived, we live in a performance-based culture. The prevailing message here is behave well, do the right things, and there will be a payoff someday. There will be a reward. It's a performance reward system that we find ourselves in. We get a lot of that. So grace just runs counter to that whole way of thinking. In two weeks, we're going to finish out this series with a message that I'm going to call Scandalous Grace. And I'm going to just be sharing with you some of the ways that God's been rocking my world in the last couple of years when it comes to who he is and his grace in my life. And so hopefully you'll look forward to that scandalous grace. Well, God's word instructs us to keep growing in grace. And so towards that end, I want us to look together today at this passage of scripture that describes what I'm going to call sacrificial grace. We've looked at sovereign grace and last week saving grace. By the way, if you missed last weekend here, you, you, you ought to get online and listen to Pastor Jay's message. It was just dynamite, good stuff. And so now sacrificial grace today. So let me set the scene, kind of the backdrop of what's going on uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's the middle of the first century A.D. The church of Jesus that started in Jerusalem is now 25 years old. It's, the Jesus movement has grown and expanded. It's gone north through Syria and west into what we call Turkey and Greece, that area that's Bible scholars called Asia Minor, and there's a widespread famine that has affected much of that whole region, and so it's lean times in Asia Minor and in Israel and in Jerusalem. There's a severe economic downturn (laughs) that's going on. Sound familiar? Food is scarce. Joblessness was up. The Roman Empire just heaped a brand new tax on everybody, so The ranks of the needy were swelling, and Jerusalem was particularly hard hit. There were a lot of seniors and widows living there at this time, and they had come to kind of spend their golden years at the center of of the action, kind of at the hub. And so there were more people than resources in Jerusalem in particular. And the Apostle Paul had become aware of the situation, and by the grace of God, he'd been moved to do something about it. So he set out on a course to take up a relief offering, not unlike what we're doing right now for the folks in Haiti. And by the way, we just kind of put this thing together real quick this week as this all came up, and so far about $2,400 has come in towards this Haiti relief fund, and uh, we'll give you an opportunity at the end if you want to contribute towards that. But that's what Paul was doing. He was traveling from church to church, taking up a collection to eventually pass on to those needy saints over in Jerusalem. Now, the city, the church he's writing to was in Corinth. Corinth was located in the southern part of the Grecian Peninsula. Up north was a region called Macedonia. And uh, Paul had been to Macedonia. He'd He'd been doing his collection work up there. And something very phenomenal had happened in Macedonia. And as he's writing the Corinthians, he's going to tell them about what happened up north among those churches to kind of stir up the Corinthians a little bit. So let's read about this. And then I'll, as we do, I'll make some observations, and then um, I want to apply it at the end to this church, to New Life Church, Gehenna. Okay? So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Here's how he begins. And now, brothers, talking to the people in Corinth, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. So he's saying, I'm going to tell you about 
these other folks where I was up north in Macedonia. And the first thing I note is that what happened there, whatever it was, he's going to describe it in a moment, but he attributes it to the grace of God. I want you to know about the grace that came down, that arrived in Macedonia. We sing a song around here called Grace Like Rain. And maybe you want to keep that image in your mind, the the substance of grace. Grace pouring down from heaven to earth. Grace pouring down from God to man, like rain drenching his people. In this case, drenching the Macedonian believers. Grace purchased for them and for us by the cross of Jesus Christ. And this grace, he says, had an effect. It had an effect on these Macedonian believers. Verse 2, here's the effect. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. This was the effect that the grace of God poured out on the Macedonians had in them. And I noticed some interesting things here. Notice the grace of God didn't remove their troubles, didn't shield them from their troubles, nor did it improve their financial situation. He says, they were in extreme trial, they were very poor, and I think we need to be reminded today that the grace of God, the purpose of the grace of God in our lives, is not necessarily to make life easier for us, but it's to give us the divine empowerment and enablement to cling to Christ, to stay faithful and devoted to Him, even during the hard times. A couple weeks ago, I said, any definition of grace that doesn't leave room for hardship, trial, struggle, trouble, difficulty, is an incomplete definition of grace. God's grace, the purpose of God's grace, is not necessarily to remove all of those things, but to produce something in us through hardship. And notice what it produced. Joy and generosity. Do you see that? overflowing joy, and rich generosity. I found it interesting as I was studying this week, these two concepts, grace and joy, grace and joy. They're related. In fact, in the original language, the Greek word for grace is charis. Would you say that with me? Charis. And the word for joy is kara. Charis and kara. You know what that tells me? Grace and joy are related. And I think Paul would say, God's grace in your life will produce his joy in your heart. Have you ever known anybody who was going through very difficult times in terms of their circumstances, but they still had joy? They weren't sinking into whining and complaining and despair. They weren't taking it out on God. They were still filled with joy. That's the grace of God having its effect in the life of a believer. That's what was happening in the lives of the Macedonians. And Paul says, you guys, need, you guys in Corinth, you need to know about those guys up there. They're going through difficult times, severe trial. They're extremely poor, and yet they've got joy. That's the grace of God, the mark of grace in their lives. And, he says, they remain poor. God didn't all of a sudden you know, pour out prosperity on these folks up there, but his grace had this effect. It produced generosity in the midst of poverty. And that is a fantastic and incredible thing. And so, Paul wants to challenge the Corinthian churches to think about what God was doing up in Macedonia. Let me just get this straight, okay? Put that map back up there again. I I want you to 
see this, and I got my little handy-dandy little pointer here. See that? All right. Just to keep everything straight here, Paul's writing to the folks in Corinth. You see Corinth. Up here is Macedonia. So he's talking to these guys about these guys. But he's taking a collection for people in Jerusalem, which was over about here. Sorry, we couldn't find a map that could keep it all in perspective there. But what he's saying is these guys up in Macedonia were poor, and they're giving an offering to the folks over in Jerusalem who were very poor. So what you have here is the poor helping the very poor. This is God's grace stirring up generosity in the hearts of poor people so that they can help their brothers and sisters hundreds of miles away who are very, very poor. What an amazing thing God's grace is. He says, it, he says their poverty and their joy welled up in rich generosity. Then he goes on to describe their generosity in detail. Verse 3, For I testify that they gave, he's talking about this collection, this relief offering now, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So I noticed several things. First, he says they gave beyond their ability. What would we call that? Sacrificial giving, right? They didn't give in according, according to their ability. They gave beyond their ability. They gave their lunch money. It affected their lifestyle to give. Well, they were poor, so that makes sense. Then he says, entirely on their own they gave. This was not Paul using his apostolic authority to twist their arm and say, you better give, you guys. No, they, they wanted to give entirely on their own. And then he says, and they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of giving. Their giving was passionate. You know what that tells me when I thought about that? That tells me that, that Paul had most likely told them to stop. Hey, guys, you've given it up. You don't have it to give. And they're like, no, no, no. We want to give. We want to give more. And see, this is the effect of grace in people's lives. It makes them strange. Weird, crazy, nutty. They want to do things beyond their ability and they want to do it eagerly and voluntarily and passionately. Please let us give more. You know, thinking about this relief effort, and I think our church, New Life, is good about giving in this way, eagerly, passionately, sacrificially, especially for these kinds of offerings. Just this week, we cut a check for $28,000. This was our Christmas offering. If you recall, a lot of us gave at Christmas time to help purchase some land for the Makono Community Church to build a building on over in Uganda, our new sister church partnership that we're developing with, with this church. And they needed this land to become their own, to build on it, and we needed to raise $28,000. And you gave, and we cut a check this week to send so that they can own that land to build on. So praise God for that. And then you gave more than that. You gave more that was needed. So we cut another check for several thousand dollars to give to our local ministry partner, Victory Mission, who hands out, gives out food and clothing to folks, needy folks right here in our own area. It's just right up the road. And so I think, especially in recent years, our church has you know, hit the ball out of the park when it comes to this kind of giving towards a special offering, a relief effort, that kind of thing. 
Praise God for that. Verse 5. He continues to marvel at the generosity of the Macedonian churches. He said, And they didn't do this as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves first to the Lord. That tells me that the giving of the Macedonians was an act of worship. They said, you know, grace has come to us, God, and so we are yours. We are yours. Everything we have, everything we own, all of our time, our energy, our money, it is yours. It's all at your disposal. Just tell us what to do. Tell us where to give it. Where to give it. And then he says, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. I think the us refers to Paul and his comrades there. And that tells me that their giving came out of a grateful submission to their apostolic leaders. And so they said, we are gods and, and we are yours. And everything we have is at your disposal, Paul. Our time is your time. Our money is your money. Use it as you see fit. And so verse 6, he says, So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. So now he's shifting the focus from the Macedonians. Now he's turning to his readers, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. And he says, look, as far as your pledged contribution, they had made a a pledge a year prior to the writing of this letter. A a year prior, they had said, hey, we want to be included in this effort. We want to be included in this collection. We want to contribute to that. But they not yet fulfilled that pledge. And so Paul says, I'm going to send my man Titus to you. And he's going to encourage you to fulfill the pledge that you made a year ago. That tells us that Grace giving involves not only making not only making financial pledges, but keeping them, fulfilling them. You know, sometimes we need people who will speak into our lives and challenge us in a personal, face-to-face way to do what God's grace prompted us to do. That was Titus' task, to help the Corinthians fulfill the pledge that they had made. You see, it's not just what you start that matters, it's how you finish. True? Whether it's a class that you're taking, an assignment that you've been given, a job that you're working on, a pledge that you made, or a life. It's not just how you start that matters, it's how you finish, how you cross the finish line, whether or not you bring it to completion. That's what he's saying. Then in verse 7, but just as you excel in everything, he tells the church at Corinth, you guys are doing great in these areas, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. That tells us that generosity is as much an area of spiritual growth as other important areas that we're less queasy about talking about. You know, in our culture, and especially in the current climate, Pastors feel great pressure to not talk much at all about money and giving and stewardship and finances. And of course, the big-haired televangelists haven't helped matters any with their incessant (laughs) demands for more and more money and sowing seeds into this ministry and all those kinds of things. A subject that's often viewed as personal and off limits, kind of taboo to talk about, but you need to know that, that 
The writers of the Bible didn't view it that way. Generous financial giving is as much an area of spiritual growth as love, faith, controlling your tongue, prayer. Now, some of you get that more than I do, because this past year in 2009, I had more church members kind of take me aside and gently rebuke me for not talking about money than ever. Some of you. A couple came to me after the first service and they said, thank you, thank you for instructing our church about the, the way that God wants us to handle our resources. So I'm going to accommodate you today. Someone says, you know, a friend says to you afterwards, well, I heard your pastor talked about money. You can just say, yeah, well, we asked him to. It's part of discipleship, is it not? Paul said, become an excellent giver. Verse 8, I'm not commanding you, he says. Again, I'm not pulling rank on you guys, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. (laughs) I think Paul had a little bit of a competitive streak in him. He said, I I want to compare you guys with others. Who are the others? Well, it's those folks from up north, those Macedonian churches. You know, when you read Paul's letters to the Corinthians, you get the sense that this church in Corinth had a little bit of an arrogant streak in it. Kind of like they were saying, hey, look at us. We got it going on in our church. We got talented and gifted people. Our band is off the charts, hot. We got superstar speakers who preach and teach us the word of God. We're big on love. We even speak in tongues. All you other churches, come to the Superstar Church Conference here in Corinth and learn from the masters how to do it. Kind of get that idea. And what I hear Paul saying here is, well, I'm matching you guys up against those folks up north and you're you're coming out at the short end of the stick. (laughs) You better bring your A game. If you want to match paces with the guys up in Macedonia... You guys talk about what an excellent church you are. Well, talk is cheap. Put your money where your mouth is. Become excellent givers. Let's see if you're really as loving as you say you are. If you really love Christ, it's going to show up in radical generosity in this collection, in this offering. That's basically what he was saying. And then he said, not only that, it's a test. I want to test, he said, the sincerity of your love. That tells me that opportunities to give are actually spiritual tests. To see what we're holding on to, to see what we're treasuring, to see what we're satisfying. Then check out this verse 9. I love this verse. He's going to give now the ground, the basis for all giving. Verse 9, for you know... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What's he saying? It's the self-emptying, sacrificial grace of Jesus that should prompt the self-emptying, sacrificial generosity of his people. That's what he's saying. This verse is the gospel. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And he's saying, 
He's telling the Corinthians that receiving the gospel of grace should prompt sacrificial generosity in them. I wrote this. If we are truly a gospel-soaked, gospel-driven, gospel-transformed people, one of the effects of God's gospel grace in our lives will be radical generosity with our resources. To make as much money as God will enable us to make, hear me now, to make as much money as God will allow, will enable us to make, and then choose a simple life so that we can release as much of it as possible into his kingdom work. And that is countercultural. Now, look at how Paul describes the sacrificial grace of Jesus. Three parts or three phases. Do you see it in verse 9? Though he was rich. When was he rich? Isn't he the one who said, I don't have anywhere to lay my head? Traveling around with a little band of ragtag guys? When was he rich? Theologians would call it the pre-incarnate existence of Jesus. That's a big word. Like before he got to Bethlehem, he existed in heaven and he was filthy rich. Wealthy beyond our wildest dreams when Jesus was in heaven. Though he was rich. Where? In heaven. You say, how was he rich? Oh my gracious. He received worship from the angels, right? We've talked about that. Holy, 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 all of that for thousands of years. He had the joy of being in his father's presence. He's a member of a very exclusive club called the Holy Trinity. It's only three. Jesus was one of those three. Listen, we have no idea how wealthy Jesus Christ was in heaven. No idea. We can't even conceive of how wealthy, how lavishly rich Jesus was in heaven. But it says, though he was rich, yet he became poor. Literally, he entered into a state of poverty. He wrote the book on it. Seven steps to poverty. Would not be a bestseller in our culture, would it? Say, when did he become poor? My favorite, absolute favorite passage on this is Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, turn there. Describes the descent of Jesus into poverty. Seven divine decisions that he made to come from heaven to earth. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who... Being in very nature, what does it say? God. So if someone ever tells you the Bible does not teach that Jesus wasn't his God, just say, well, what about Philippians 2.6? Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God, equal, did not consider that something to be grasped or clutched tightly or held onto or he didn't claim the right. But he made himself, what does it say? Nothing. Literally, in the Greek, he emptied himself. He divested himself of all, theologians again, all of his divine prerogatives. Let him go. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see the seven steps down 
First, he surrendered his position. He didn't consider equality with God something to be clutched or grasped. He gave that up. He gave up his rights and privileges. He said he emptied himself. He chose to reverse roles. The master became a servant. He identified with those that he served. It says he was made in human likeness. That means he looked like one of us. Well, not like one of us, like a first century Middle Eastern man. Fit right in. He accepted unfair treatment. It says he humbled himself, you know. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They plucked out his beard, they spit on him, they rejected him, they mocked him. They ended up hanging him on a cross. What kind of a reception is that? But he submitted to it. He submitted to authority. It says he became obedient. He's talking about to his father. Remember in the garden when he was praying and he said, God, if there's another way, but Father, not my will, but yours be done. He knew the plan, the gospel plan. He knew his role in it. Became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Not just your ordinary garden variety method of execution, but the most humiliating, excruciating form of execution that had been invented up to that point and probably ever. The death of a common criminal. Though he was rich, yet he became poor. Why? So that you, what did Paul say? through his poverty, might become rich. And somebody says, yeah, there it is. Jesus died so that I could have more boats, more airplane hangers, more toys, bigger houses, more luxuries. It's right there. And I say, if that's what you think, you don't understand the context of richness in which he's talking. Through his poverty, you became rich like Jesus was rich in heaven. With his father, you became rich like the Macedonians were rich. Jesus did not die so that we could acquire more stuff. He died to make those who repent of their sins and believe in him incredibly wealthy in spiritual blessings. Salvation, forgiveness, the righteousness of Christ imputed to your account, redemption, reconciliation, emancipation, justification, a home in heaven, an eternal inheritance, <laughs> glory, authority, honor, rewards in heaven. You are filthy rich if you are in Christ today with spiritual blessings, as am I. You may not be rich in material things, but if you're in Christ, you're rich in the things that really matter. On the back of your outline, down at the bottom, it says, Hello, my name is, and you can write in there, Rich! Not Richard, but Rich! <laughs> you are rich in Christ. He died to make us rich. And so if I were to summarize these nine verses, I would say it like this. The sacrificial grace of Jesus Christ should have this effect in our lives, the recipients of His grace. It should have this effect to cause us to become radically generous 
with our resources. That's his whole point. And now I'd like to take all of this and serve as a kind of stand-in for Paul (laughs) in speaking to the congregation that is New Life Church, Gehenna. Big shoes, I know. (laughs) I want to take what he said to the church there in Corinth and apply it to us here 20 centuries later. You know, information without application leads to frustration, not transformation. And so we want to apply the Word of God. We want to let the Spirit of God transform us through what we've learned today. And I, I took care in choosing words to say what I believe Paul would want to say to us or would want me to say to you about sacrificial grace today. I wrote it down there on your outline so I wouldn't mess it up when it got to this point. So here's what I want to say to you today based on what we just heard. Embrace... The gospel of Jesus, which releases you, New Life Church Gehanna, releases you from enslavement to idolatrous consumerism, freeing you to now be fully satisfied in him and enabled to live simply and contentedly within his gracious provision. Can you say amen to that in your heart? So counterculture. Embrace the gospel of Jesus, which frees us from this incessant desire to just keep acquiring more and more stuff. Got to have the newest, the latest, version 3.0, 4.0, 10.0. Got to have the shiniest new thing coming along. Why? To fill up this emptiness in me. And the gospel frees us from that. Because Jesus comes and fills up our lives. He becomes our supreme satisfaction in life. And we can walk through the ball and say, nope, don't need that. Don't need that. Don't need that. That's one of the effects of the gospel of grace in our lives is to make Jesus our supreme satisfying treasure. Are you understanding this? Because if you don't, you'll walk through your life having to get every new thing that comes out. And the whole culture is geared towards helping you do that. And you'll get to the end of your life, and you know what? You'll have all this pile of stuff, and it still won't be satisfying. Because it was never meant to satisfy. The gospel of Christ sets us free from that idolatry. Second, let your hearts, new life, be moved by knowing of the sacrificial grace of Jesus May it prompt a worshipful response of radical generosity, freely and joyfully giving away your resources to bless other people. (laughs) You know, the ground of our giving in terms of the New Testament is the grace of Jesus Christ to us. That is the primary cause for our generosity. Now, studies have been done. People study, you know, why do people give to their church? And all these studies have been done and the results come back and say, well, some people give to their church because there's a compelling vision there that captivates them and that's why they give. And other studies say, well, it's, it's because the pastor is dynamic and charismatic and magnetic and people give because they love their pastor. And other studies say, well, no, it's the, it's the mission of the church that is captivating to them. That's why they give. And other studies come back and say, no, people give because they know that God will give back to them. God will bless them in return. Or Some of the studies say some people give because of the need that's presented. And, and 
While all of those may be true, I submit that all of those are secondary in the New Testament to the primary cause of generosity, which is that we are recipients of the grace of Jesus Christ. And if our pastor is a dud, and if the vision is lame, and if the mission isn't compelling, and there are no apparent needs, and God never blesses you at all with anything, you still want to give. Because you've been rescued and redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, and you say, I'm going to give somehow, somewhere, some way, because that's the effect of His grace in me. I've got to give. That's New Testament grace giving. That's the road that true disciples of Jesus Christ are on. Maybe you're not there, but that's the road you're on to get there. I give because of His grace to me. I said earlier that I think this church is very good at special offerings, giving towards those need-based things that we hear about, and we should be. One of our elders calls that kind of giving sexy giving. I won't tell you who it was, but I would not use that kind of terminology for such a thing. But we are good at sexy giving, I think, as a church. But what about that staple giving? What about that week in, week out, month in, month out, consistent, regular tithing and supporting the work of God? You know, we have room for improvement in this area. Our financial people let me know that last year in 2009, 20% of our, more than 20% of our members gave nothing all year. And I know there's joblessness, I understand all of that, but fully a third of our members gave zero between August and October. There's room for growth here. You know what that does? One of the effects of that is it puts a greater burden on others. Number three, to us, to New Life, I would say this. See opportunities to be generous as tests of your love for Christ and ever mindful of his grace to you, strive to not just be mediocre, but excellent in this grace of giving. You ever thought about what what would it look like for you to become an excellent giver? to excel in this area, like Paul said. You ever thought about that? Would it look like selling off some of your excess possessions on Craigslist or eBay and taking the proceeds from that and giving it to the poor, like Jesus challenged the rich young ruler to do? Would it look like making an actual pledge or commitment to giving regularly rather than just being kind of haphazard or casual about it? Would it involve getting off autopilot and actually increasing your giving from the same amount you've been giving for many, many years? This last week, our uh, church's giving statements came out. I got ours via email and I, for our family, and I printed it out. And I said, hey, honey, look, look at this. We gave more to God's work through New Life Church in 2009 than ever. It was a year of college tuition for us. It was a year of Medical stuff coming out, you know. I was going to say out the wazoo. Can you say that, church? All this stuff. And we gave more to God's work through New Life Church in 2009 than ever. And you say, well, yeah, your salary probably went up. 
Actually, it's gone down. But my appreciation for the grace of God in my life has gone up. I get it more now than I think I've ever gotten it. And there's something in me that wants to give more. I have a goal in my life. Hopefully, before I die, before I slip into eternity, I want that check I write to the church for God's work to be the largest check I write every month. I'm almost there. Just got that mortgage thing, you know? Need to increase my giving and downsize to get there, but that's, that's deep in me. You say, you're bragging about your giving. No, I'm not. I'm just telling you that the grace of God has had its effect and is having its effect in Steve's heart. And it's causing me to want to be more generous with my resources and to live more simply and more contentedly within God's gracious provision so that I can give more away. What would it look like for you? Would it involve letting the gospel free you from incessant bondage to acquiring more stuff? Would it involve getting yourself in a mindset where you're ready and willing to give spontaneously to needs that present themselves on a moment's notice? Would it involve doing what some have done and downsizing your whole lifestyle so that if God calls you to India, to Africa, to Iraq, as one of our young ladies went last year, you could say, I'm good to go. I don't have all these encumbrances and attachments here. God, just tell me where to go. Had a couple come up after the first celebration say, we think that's where God's taking us, to get so freed up that if he says move, we can move. Maybe for you, excelling and giving would involve learning to give with joy. God loves a cheerful giver. To give with joy and delight as an act of worship to the gracious God who saved you instead of giving out of duty or obligation or because that guy keeps talking to me about it. New Life Church, excel in the grace of giving. Number four, let stories of radical generosity in other churches inflame your heart with a passion to demonstrate your own love for Christ through giving to his work. You say, well, that sounds competitive. Well, Paul was. He said, those Macedonian churches are kicking your guys' rear ends in this area. Get in the game. You know, 2009 was a year of of, of reduced giving and budget shortfalls for thousands and thousands and thousands of churches who came up short. Maybe you've heard of a few of them. There's one called Saddleback Church, a guy named Rick Warren. You ever heard of him? Hear about what happened to that church at the end of the year? Came up a little short, $900,000. So on, on December 31st, he clicked out a little email, I think, and sent it to his folks and said, guys, we're short. Would you consider giving a one-time gift to just make up this budget shortfall? And his people gave $2.4 million to enter into the new year with no budget deficit. Just down the road, a little church called World Harvest Pastored by Rod Parsley. You heard of that church? Same situation, got to the end of the year, except they're $3 million short. So he puts it out. It all came in. So you're going somewhere with this, aren't you? Uh, 
For our fiscal year, our budget deficit is not $3 million. It's not $900,000. But we do have a deficit of $66,000. And our leadership team has felt compelled that I would challenge New Life Church with that. And I wrote you a letter about it, and you'll get it in the next 7 to 10 days, and just challenge you to give a special one-time gift to just wipe out and erase that budget deficit for our fiscal year. If Saddleback can do it, I mean, those Californians, you know, if down the road, Canal Winchester, they can do it. By God's grace, we can do it. By tax day, that's the idea. By April 15th, special one-time gift from every one of us, all of us who call New Life our church, to just erase that thing so we can give glory to God. And i tell you more about that in a letter. Number five, don't shrink back from making financial pledges. But rather, seize those opportunities and let your zeal at the outset be matched by strong commitment to complete what you were prompted to do by His grace. And this is that time of year where as a church body, we make our pledges, something we've done for over 20 years. We use a little tool, a little pledge card that, again, those are included in this letter I'm sending you. And it's just that time of year. It's January and we ask you, pray, seek God, talk with your spouse. Consider the grace of God to you. Communicate your plans. Make a pledge as far as what you believe God wants you to give to his work during 2010. We'll ask you to turn those in in a couple weeks. And You say, well, what do, what do our tithes and offerings go for, Steve? Do you just want a shiny new car? Well... Have you seen my car? <laughs> Shiny new would be a huge improvement. But no, not about that. It has been, has always been and is now about glorifying God through transformed lives. Your tithes and offerings go to pay our missionaries that we support. Pays the salaries and benefits of the people who are on our staff here, the people you love, who equip you and minister to you, supports all the ministries that go on here, our facilities, keeps the lights on, the heat on, the water running, the electricity, pays the mortgage on this building. That and a dozen other things are what all of our tithes and offerings go to pay for. We put a little video together that kind of describes our offerings at work, some really cool, very important things, and then some humorous things as well. So we'll play that for you in a moment. I just want to say this. Let the sacrificial grace of Jesus take root in your heart and let it have an effect. And if you do, one of the effects will be generosity. Let's excel, church, in the grace of giving this year. Amen? We'll take a look at this video, check it out, and then we'll worship together. 2009 at New Life Church leading people into transforming relationships with Jesus Christ. The faithful giving of hundreds of families and individuals. Six million, 32,000 square feet of carpet vacuumed. 18 missionary families. 70,241 children's check-in labels. 451 first-time guests and celebrations. 250 food bags to Victory Mission. 
150 women at spring retreat, 3,480 pages of class curriculum copy, 1,301 miles driven to visit hospitals, 210 hours of celebrations, 196 chicken feet, donkey burgers and plantains eaten on the mission field, 2,800 light bulbs maintained weekly, 1,604 prison outreach decisions, 8,345 snacks at VBS, two yellow houses built in Costa Rica, 35 children baptized, 28 people completed pre-marriage classes, 102 short-term missionaries, 400 men's breakfast meals, 24 children dedicated, 12,480 toilet cleanings, 167 in Discover New Life, 18,200 celebration registers, seven countries visited on mission trips, 5,346 meetings with spiritual partners, a thousand water balloons splattered by teens, six pigs blessed in African villages, 283 worship songs lifted to Jesus, 2,700 orphans served worldwide, seven weekly student ministry gatherings, 7,200 pieces of paper for small group worship songs, 25 free single parent oil changes, 570 malaria pills taken, 66 musicians leading worship, 104,000 gallons of trash, 195 sessions of marriage counseling, 53 miles of toilet paper, 460,940 miles traveled for mission work, 2,962 meals served to the poor in Central Ohio, 11,531 online listens to sermons, 547 shoe boxes sent around the world, 25 student ministry adult leaders, 1,776 diapers changed, 24 Sunday worship times at a nursing home, 45 inner healing ministry sessions, 488 people at marriage ministry events, 120 gallons of lemonade consumed by teens, 25 celebration technicians, 3,300 prayer requests, 100 traditions residents ministered to. 148 teens in weekly student gatherings, 346 New Life journals used in daily quiet times, 612 people in 66 New Life small groups, 85 baptisms, 107 new ministry partner families, thousands of prayers lifted up, countless hugs given and received, lives transformed.